To this day, I still get the chills when the national anthem is performed at a ceremony or sporting event. Why would that be? I'm honestly not sure why a song or music affects me in that way. Perhaps it has something to do with the realization of the sacrifices of those who have come before me. Perhaps it's related to the flag-draped coffins I personally witnessed being lowered into the ground, thankfully which were few. No sane person wants to die for their country. However, most realize that, when they sign on the dotted line, that may be what the future ultimately holds for them. For most, being a service member is about being part of something bigger than themselves. Ultimately, God is in control of what our future holds in this country, and if America is going to continue to be a beacon on a hill, it will always require the sacrifice of some. I pray that this is not just another day off where we gather with friends, sit by the pool, and enjoy some food and drinks together. At the very least, we should take a moment of pause, pray for the Gold Star families of the fallen, and thank God for the selfless sacrifice of more than 1.3 million soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines who paid the ultimate sacrifice in defense of our freedom and beliefs. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. Happy Memorial Day weekend to you. This is a weekend where we not only remember those who served and didn't come back, but we also want to honor those of you who have served or currently serve. In fact, that video, uh, the narration part, was written and read by my nephew, Josh, who serves in the Navy, and he also serves uh, with us uh, as a volunteer in the, in the tech booth. I'm sure he wouldn't want me to say that, but there you go. I said it anyways. So, hey, if you, uh, if you are in, uh, in the service, will you just please stand so we can just show you some love and respect and uh, support right now? We appreciate all those men and women. And love to your families as well, because I know there's some sacrifices made on, on their part, too. So we appreciate you very, very much. So last uh, week, when I gave the announcements, I made one special announcement, and I'm going to reiterate it uh, today, because coming up on June 12th, after the second service, it's really something that is for those of you who are new or newer to the church, or if you haven't even yet participated in the future vision for Illuminate. We use three words to describe it, bigger, smaller, deeper. So in this luncheon, I'll be there and I'll be describing not just the history of the church, but where God has led us up until this point and where God is leading us into the future. And as importantly, how you all can be a part of that. So we would love to have you join us for that. All you need to go, all you need to do is go to biggersmallerdeeper.com and register and let us know that, uh, that you're coming. And that would be awesome. So all right, so this morning we are in Genesis chapter 19 for the second week, and I told you last week that I'm going to spend two weeks in this chapter, and has anybody read ahead? Spending two weeks in this chapter for a couple of reasons. Number one, because very often this text doesn't get taught. <laughs> it's just kind of skimmed over. Uh, why is that? Well, if you have read it, you know that it is one of the more, perhaps the darkest, most twisted, it's the saddest narrative in the entire Bible. Dark, twisted, sad. Oh, we've had a taste of all three of those things this last week, right? The events in Uvalde, Texas. 
And once again, we have been reminded that the source of the world's problems lies within the human heart. That is undeniable. You've heard me say many times, why is the world so jacked up? Well, it's because men and women, all of humanity, has this overwhelming tendency to want to live their lives apart from God. That leads to destruction, <laughs> chaos. There is an unwinding of the culture. You see this in the Garden of Eden where God cre creates a perfect environment, gives Adam and Eve everything they could ever want or need, lays down only one restriction, and what do they do? Mm, not for us. One, just one restriction, not for us. Just one! And man is proven to want to go his own way, and ever since then there has been an unwinding. And so here we are. Now what's interesting about our text is that we see it there. This is nothing new. The narrative actually captures what's happening in our own modern time, and it also gives the solution. So I'm bringing it in two weeks because, number one, it's not often taught. Number two, though, it has profound insights for you and me as individuals, and then collectively as a church, and also especially for those of you, those of us who are parents. So the story surrounds this guy named Lot. We've been looking at his life for the last few weeks. He's a really interesting individual. It's like he's divided. We've noticed that he has one foot in the culture, and he has one foot in faith. And ultimately, this leads to a series of bad decisions. He's torn between the two. But one actually begins to take over. Through a series of really bad decisions, we see him actually living in the infamous city of Sodom which was known not only for its sexual immorality, but it was known for its total neglect of the poor and the needy. It was a very proud city, and God judges it. We ask the question, how does a guy like Lot wind up there? Well, remember first we read that he pitches his camp outside the city, and then there's something about the city that has an allure, and he starts to get closer to it until eventually we read that he's actually a man who sits at the city gate, which means he has a place of prominence and influence. He's the guy that checks to see who comes and who goes. You don't get there by accident. So he's moving and gravitating toward this infamously wicked city, but yet there's still part of him that really struggles with it. In fact, we read a passage last week. I'm going to read it again. Three times in this one passage, we're told that Lot is righteous. You're like, how so? Well, because there were things that happened in the city that bugged him. Some of the things lured him. He liked it. They were attractive to him, but there are some things that repelled him. Let me read it to you again. Second Peter chapter 2, essentially what the author is saying is, God is coming to judge. The patience of God will come to an end. And when the patience of God comes to an end, his justice will arrive in its fullness. And God will spare the righteous. And then he pulls from the past. He's like, hey, remember when you, you read through your Old Testament? We've got some examples of God sparing the righteous. So don't worry about that. But let's talk about it. He says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, definite article before that word, a specific day that's coming, the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, only one guy on the planet that God was talking to, and that was Noah, because he was righteous, with seven others, as was his family, when he brought a flood upon the world 
of the ungodly. So if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to dust, ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what? Of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Three times in this passage, Lot is declared as righteous. He observed some of the things in his city, and he was appalled. And yet there was something about that city that had a lure. Something about that city that he couldn't resist. Something about his city that was attractive. He was revolted but drawn. His life paints the picture of this sobering reality. It's possible for a Christian to be distressed by the world and yet still hang on to it. It's possible for a Christian to hang on to the world, be distressed by it, and yet at the same time participate in some of the things that are actually distressing to you. It's like the closer he moved to Sodom, the more Sodom began to embrace him and draw him close. And he becomes absorbed to some degree in the culture. This would prove to have a catastrophic effect in his life in more ways than he realizes. So this has been an ongoing struggle for uh, the people of God for a while. The Bible tells us as Christians we should be in the world and not of it. What does that even mean? Well, for some, they practice a, well, there's actually, this is actually a thing, Christian monasticism. It's where Christians essentially gather together in Christian communes and they live the lifestyle of monks separated from the culture. Bad idea. Doesn't at all represent the life of Jesus when he was on the earth. In the world and not of it. What that means is that you can associate with people and things in the world and still be separate from them morally. This is exactly what you see Jesus doing, right? He was reaching out to people, but yet he still held this biblical moral that, that he lived up to. But this has been the challenge for Christians throughout the ages, and it, it's probably your challenge as well. Because it's, uh, it's like we live in a culture that has some things that are really appealing to us, and yet at the same time, we know those things might not be in our best interest, but we're drawn to them. What do you do with that? How do you deal with that? This is a challenge for the, the church in general. Quite frankly, it's been the challenge for preachers, right? Over the last five or 10 years, up until the last five or 10 years, I would say, there was a, a big movement within evangelicalism. And uh, again, preachers in particular, where the idea was that we would preach to people's felt needs. And so this gave rise to, and I'm going to use some churchy terms here, this gave rise to uh, the seeker-sensitive movement or seeker-driven movement. And I think that that did have a certain appeal uh, in its time. Those days are over. And here's why. If you're trying to appeal to a person's felt need, 
the cultural landscape has changed dramatically, even within the last five years, in my opinion. Here's how. The culture has dominated the American mindset in telling you that if anyone disagrees or challenges the way you feel, then that voice is to be dismissed entirely. Let me say it again. The culture has dominated the American mindset that now tells people if somebody challenges the way you feel, that person should immediately be dismissed. More so, if you're preaching to people's felt needs, gone are the days when people felt the need to be forgiven. Gone are the days when people feel the need to be forgiven for pretty much anything they do. So what happens is, if you're speaking to people's felt needs, you end up soft-pedaling the message because there are certain words that get removed from the vocabulary, words that are really important. And let me tell you, if you're here for the first time, some of this might be new to you, but let me just lay it out in a way that I think it might make logical sense for you because there's this word that's used in the Bible that we don't hear very often. It's just a simple word, three-letter word, sin. You don't hear that word very often, but essentially the heart of sin is to say, I'll do whatever I want, <laughs> right? We know, survey says, that most Americans hold as the highest of all virtues Autonomy. Don't anybody tell me what I should believe or what I should think. Okay, realize the ultimate test of any worldview is its livability. We can have that conversation, and that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. But outside of that, anybody trying to tell anybody else how they should live their lives is nothing more than arrogant and, uh, and should be rejected. And so, so a consistent appeal to a person's felt needs produces, in my opinion, and it's the right one, a shallow church. <laughs> Did you catch that last part? Yeah. It produces a shallow church with a watered-down gospel which leads to Christian worldliness. So this is why very often there's very little difference between someone who calls himself a Christian and someone who doesn't. I'm a huge fan of massages. Especially if you're pushing your body physically, you get some lactic acid building up, and man, nothing like a good massage to work that out. Many people feel the need for a spiritual massage. The challenge is that the message of Jesus, it's not really a massage. It is just that. It's a message, not a massage. A massage is meant to make you feel good. The message of Jesus, that's not its primary goal. The primary goal is not to make you feel good. The primary goal is actually to point out your badness. 
and then to show you God's response in light of your badness, and then you might start to feel good. You should. But it's a message, not a massage. And so what's happening in the life of Lot is he's kind of like this chameleon who is really what he's after is the massage, not the message. So he's got one foot in one camp and one foot in another camp. And he's kind of like, he's kind of like, I got my spiritual thing going on, but I got my worldly thing going on, and I'm good. And this ends up having a catastrophic effect in his life, especially because he is a parent. And when a parent lives this sort of this chameleon lifestyle, I can assure you that the kids pick up on it. And this is where it turns dark and twisted uh, for this man. His lifestyle has affected his family. So, uh, are you ready? Genesis chapter 19, verse 30. Now, Lot went up to Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters because he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. So even this move shows you this man's duplicity. What happened earlier was God's like, I'm going to rain down on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I'm going to judge them for their wickedness. There wasn't one person in the city that was righteous. He spares Lot, which is kind of crazy. Lot is spared in the same way that Noah is spared. They're certainly not perfect, but they have some heart toward God. God recognizes that righteousness, and and he spares them. The angel leads Lot and his family up into the hills, into the mountains, and Lot's like, I don't want to go there, right? Cave life is not for me. Hey, can we just pause here in the city of Zoar? We know Zoar was a, a small, in fact, the word Zoar means small, this little town on the outskirts of Sodom. Hey, can we just chill in this little city over here? That'd be much better than hanging out in this cave. He's a man who likes nice things. Remember, when he had the choice of land, he chose the best land for himself. Let's just stop here in this city. Be, 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 a, be a better stop for it. So he's there, and what happens is he becomes afraid. So it, that didn't work, right? And let me say this. Anytime you fail to trust in God's leading in your life, you become a victim to the monsters of your own imagination. Let me say that again. Anytime you fail to trust God's word or God's leading in your life, your head starts to get wrecked and you become a victim to the monsters that you create in your own imagination. He's like, I can't be here. I need to go. I need to go. Where am I? I'm going to go to the mountains. Well, that's where God wanted to take you in the first place. So now Lot and his daughter are heading up into the mountains, uh, into the caves. Um, fear clouds judgment. This is why over and over in the Bible, we've said it many times, the most often repeated command in the Bible is what? Do not fear. Trust in God. Not only does it say do not fear, the quick follow-up is trust in God. You're always going to put your trust in something. Nowhere in the Bible does it say place your trust in man. Now, we have to develop trust in our relationships to some degree, but ultimately your trust resides in God. So caves are horrible places. They're dark, they're damp, they're cold, uh, and it's just back in the day even more so because caves were primarily used to bury dead people. And then this happens in verse 31. The firstborn daughter says to the younger, our dad is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. What does that mean? Sort of the 
the way between men and women, let's say. So come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And Lot did not know when she lay down or when she arose. So this is some Jerry Springer stuff. (laughs) If any of you are old enough to catch that reference. If not, Google it later. I told you, I told you. Things got weird fast. What can be said here? Well, first of all, incest was considered taboo in Mesopotamian culture, Egyptian culture, Hebrew culture, in fact, so much so that it was punishable by death. In other words, the girls knew, even at this early date of human history, the girls knew that this was wrong. Um, Additionally, they have to get Lot drunk in order for this to happen. Why? Well, they explain why so that we can preserve offspring. So there's this mindset that they both have, and it's not good, but it's very desperate. So imagine what they've just been through, right? Put yourself in that context where it's like, we know that Lot was very, very wealthy. He's living in this this very sophisticated city and with all of its vices. These girls are a, a part of that. They've been raised in that culture. But then in an instant, their wealth, their status, their prominence, all their stuff, their mother has been taken away. They have nothing. It's all gone. And if you've ever had a lot, and then you've gotten it taken away, you're like, what's going to happen to me? Jesus puts it paradoxically. That's why you need to be generous with your stuff and not hoard it. Jesus says, see, here's the deal. You're anxious because you don't have things. It's like you start off in life, right? And you get a job, and, and, or even before you get a job, you know, your attitude is always like, stick it to the man, stick it to the man. Then all of a sudden you get a job, you start making some money, and you're like, wait a minute, I am the man, don't stick it to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, 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 and you start acquiring stuff. And then you realize, I can't lose it. Ah, this has become my security and my safety. This is why you need to be generous with what you have. You don't possess anything. You steward everything. That's the cure for your greed, generosity. So these girls had it all, and then in an instant they have nothing, and they become desperate. And and the thing that was most wanted, sort sort of the greatest indicator back in the day uh, that you were being blessed by by God or the gods was that you as a woman had children and lots of them, they begin to think, it's hopeless for us. The city's been destroyed. So once again, we see humanity taking things into his or her hands and making things worse. They should have waited on God, trusted in God, 
But you know, they didn't have the best example at home. They were raised in a profoundly depraved culture. Their father arranged for them marriages to men who lived in the city. And yet, what we read last week is these dudes come knocking on Lot's door. They want to have their way with the men in his house. All of the men of the city come, which would imply the men who were engaged to Lot's daughters. So everything's kind of messed up here in this family. There's a lot of dysfunction. Additionally, the girls knew what wine could do to a person. Deception was practiced by everyone in the city. Lot was distressed by it, but not enough, even to, with his high position, to make any kind of noticeable difference for God in that city. Certainly, if he would have spoke out about it, he would have lost his prominent position. And so in this sense, he kind of plays the role of a chameleon. Additionally, these girls would have learned how to look out for their self-interest because of what their dad did. And this is the irony in the story. And this irony would not be lost on the reader. I'll point it out to you. So what happens in the previous chapter I just mentioned, Lot offers his daughters in this horrific act. It's this forfeiture of of his responsibility as a dad. He offers his daughters to this angry mob in order to protect his self-interest. In the very next chapter, there's a role reversal. And what happens? The daughters take advantage of Lot to protect their self-interest. Where do you think they learned that? They learned it from dad. Now, understand, Lot is responsible. He was drunk, although he wasn't passed out. He couldn't remember what happened the next day. It's inexcusable on his part as well. We mentioned last week the Bible doesn't forbid alcohol, but it does forbid its abuse. Crazy parallels here between the story of Noah. Steps off the boat. It's like, yeah, it's going to be a fresh start. God spared the the only righteous guy on the planet. You know, it's like round two. Start with Adam and Eve, corruption. We're going to do a redo. Press the pause button, total restart, reboot. With Noah, Noah gets off the ark and new world. Plants a vineyard, drinks the wine, gets drunk passes out naked in his tent to his shame. A few chapters later, alcohol is involved in Lot's undoing, and he's taken advantage of. So, pretty remarkable, isn't it? Man, there's a story within the story. Both of these guys are considered righteous, but fail miserably. It's a bit of a relief. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that we will be perfectly sinless, but what it does teach is the overwhelming grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God over and over and over again, for which I'm very, I'm very personally uh, thankful for. But here's the deal. God spares both of these guys in spite of all their faults, and uh, yet what you see is the pre-flood world is still present within the heart of Noah, and the city of Sodom is still present within the heart of Lot. Uh, It kind of considers, it causes us to consider what part of maybe the old life is still present in us that we haven't quite let go of. I I describe it like this. Um, I have a garbage can. We all have garbage cans that we set out and it's full of garbage. And as the garbage begins to pile up and get higher and higher, a funny thing happens, right? It, it starts to attract more and more flies. Right? 
And then when the garbage gets so full that the lid can't shut, right, when, there's, when it's open a little bit, man, then the flies really start buzzing around. It's filled with flies. And so what happens is it's like that's your, sort of your pre-Christ existence. And so it's like Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to empty that trash for you. And you essentially dump it all on him. <laughs> that's the message of the cross. He takes all of your junk upon himself, okay? Bam, it gets emptied and, and, and it's amazing because about 90% of those flies are gone immediately, but not all of them. There's a few still, they're still buzzing around the can. And what that tells you is the Christian life is one of an ongoing cleaning that is only made possible by the work of God in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Consider Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul writes, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk. Walk considers the, uh, is referred to as the pattern of one's life. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So the word Gentile essentially in, in Paul's day refers to any ethnicity other than the Jew. So he's talking about all these other ethnicities who don't believe in God, right? So the Jew had a relationship with God, but the Gentile did not. All these other ethnicities, right? He says, you shouldn't walk the way that those do who don't have the knowledge of God. It, it, it's, it's, it's because it's, he says it's futile in their mind. So this is really interesting because it tells us that when we, re reject, when we reject the knowledge of God, we become futile or our thinking becomes useless. So I'll, I'll give you just a, a quick uh, example of this. Um, when my kids were little, I used to love taking them to the Phoenix Zoo, and there's, there's, a, there's, there's one exhibit that they loved more than any other, and it was the orangutans, right? Because orangutans are hilarious, right? So you want to have a good time, just park yourself in front of the orangutan exhibit, and it's, you'll have a good time. So that's where we are with, with our kids. Our kids are little. And, and, and as we walk up, there's, uh, there's this group of, of college students, and they begin engaging in this conversation about Darwinian evolution. And so I'm just kind of listening to them, and... They're talking about how amazing and marvelous and wonderful it is that we have evolved from apes. As they're talking, the biggest orangutan in the exhibit climbs to the top of that tower and is sitting up there, and everybody's watching to see what it's going to do, including this group of students. You know what that orangutan did? Cupped his hand like this, urinated in it, and slapped himself in the face. <laughs> I kid you not. I was like, oh, good one, God. Good one. I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Right? I was laughing so hard on the inside, and there's a part of me that wanted to go, now, which one of you is related? <laughs> so that's just a silly example of what the text says. You become futile in your thinking apart from the knowledge of God. Romans 1, Paul says, y'all are without excuse. There is a supernatural supreme being out there. And the way you know that is through nature. See the design, the order, the complexity, it all implies a designer. The more complicated the design, the more intelligent the designer. What could be more complicated than human DNA? You become futile. Now, 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 why would people become like that? Well, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, why? Why would they be alienated? Why do they have this ignorance? He tells you why. 
It's due to the hardness of their hearts. Now, that's really interesting because what this tells you is that the primary reason why people reject God is not intellectually. It's morally. He doesn't say, well, they reject God and they're alienated from the life of God because they just don't have enough evidence to believe that there is a God. No, that's not what he says. He says it's because their hearts are callous. Americans love their autonomy. That is the highest of all virtues. When Americans are asked, what's the greatest of all virtues, they will say autonomy. It's the idea that nobody's going to tell me what to do or how to live my life. You know what that is? That's a hardness of heart. So, doesn't it make sense that if there is a supernatural, supreme being, it probably stands to reason that he is good and moral, and therefore he probably has something to say about how I live my life. Whoa, back off now. Now it's getting a little too personal when you start telling me what I can and can't do. Well, God, remember now, is the author, creator, sustainer of all life, so he actually knows how life is to be lived best. Yeah, but I think I know better. See, that's the futility. And what, what drives that? You've got to love the, I mean, that's the answer, the hardness of heart. Verse 19, so they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way for you. You learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and has been corrupted through your own desires. But he adds a word, deceitful desires. That's so good. Because that's what sin is. It's deceitful. It's always the sugar coating and never the cavity. It's telling you, give in to the desire and you'll be better for it. The Bible is forthright in saying sin is fun for a season, but then it comes back to bite you. And to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, sees about how you think, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul adds this in Romans 8. For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's only when we are led by God's spirit that we begin to overcome the deeds of the flesh. Yeah, you, okay, like, what does that really, what does that look like? Well, isn't it cool? The Bible actually, actually gives you, like, it's like a spiritual yardstick by which you can gauge how well you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, right? By the Spirit. So there's actually fruit that comes when you live according to the Spirit. We're actually told what it is. How's your love? Joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's the yardstick by which we can measure whether or not the Spirit of God is controlling us. So here's how the story of Lot ends, and it doesn't end well for this guy. Verse 36, thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So the reason why the author tells you about who these kids are is because the Moabites and the Ammonites will become bitter enemies of the Israelites for hundreds of years. Where did that start? It started with this bad decision. Here's the lesson from the life of Lot. And I'm going to quote the commentary from R. Kent Hughes because I couldn't put it any better. He says, it's possible for believing people like us who are truly distressed by the course of this world, and that's many of us, right? It's possible for believers who are truly distressed by the course of this world, like the trajectory that it's on, to live lives that are so profoundly influenced by culture 
that Sodom is reborn in the lives of those we love the most. Whoa. Do you understand what he's saying? That's, that's profound. In other words, he's saying, here's the message of the story of Lot. He was repelled by his city and the things of it, but he was also drawn to it. So much so that it had an effect on the very people he loved the most. It's more than a warning shot across the bow in terms of um, parenting. It transcends it though, right? Because Jesus came to show all of us a better way. He's the ultimate example of being in the world and not of it. And he left us not only with the example, but this is the best part for me. It's not as if Jesus comes on the scene and says, just do what I tell you to do, okay? Just do what you're told. It's not like that for Jesus. Instead, what he says is this, let me lead with my death. Let me show you how committed I am to you. God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the softening agent. That's what gets into your heart and you realize, that's my motivation. That was the motivation of God, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, that was his motivation, that he gave his son. The story of Lot, in some sense, is all of our stories to a greater or lesser degree. But Jesus came to fix all of that brokenness. And you know, a dying man's words are among his most important. I'd say they're probably his most important. And so before Jesus goes to the cross, he's sharing a meal with his followers, and he says, of all the things that I've said and done, here's what I want you to remember. Remember my death. Because my death is the very thing that's going to give you life. My death will lead to my resurrection. My resurrection will lead to your resurrection. My death will lead to an unleashing of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And through the Holy Spirit, you're going to be able to put to deeds, to death, the deeds of the flesh. So it's always about the death of Jesus. So what we're going to do is we're going to enter into a time that Christians refer to as communion or the Lord's Supper. And this is something we've been doing for thousands of years, a couple thousand years since Jesus, Jesus came and introduced it. And this is about remembering not only what Jesus did on the cross, but personalizing it. What does it mean for you? So the Apostle Paul talks about taking these moments and reflecting and remembering, and in a sense, taking out the trash. But you have to remember where you're taking that trash. You know where Jesus was crucified? The town dump. He collected the trash. So Father, as we enter into this time, will by the power of your spirit, you speak to every heart in the room. People walk in for various reasons. Maybe someone doesn't even know why they're here. Pray that it become crystal clear right now. Father, we're grateful for the story of Lot because in some way, it relates to all of us. We're grateful for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we enter into this time of remembering what Jesus has done for us, I pray that your spirit would lead, that you would continue to draw us closer to you, all for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.